are happy to welcome you to our very first midweek service. Um, the year may not have started how you would have liked it to be. Um, if you are in certain countries, you are probably in a lockdown or you have some restrictions because of COVID. But God is still God. And so we will still trust him. We will still focus on him. And we will still in 2021 continue to build ourselves in our most holy faith. And so this evening, we are here for our very, very first, very special Q&A session, the first one of 2021, and we will be talking about prayer and fasting. We are trusting God to take us through, and we are trusting that we will learn a lot this evening, as we always do. So on behalf of Bishop James and Pastor Justine Hansen-Saki, would like to welcome you to this evening's midweek service. We are glad that you have joined us, and we are happy to have you with us. Amen. 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 So before we um, start, um, I would like, as usual, to welcome our very own Bishop James Hansen Saki. Um, so wherever you are, let's give a clap and a shout and a very rapturous welcome to Bishop. Tonight, um, we have two things to do. We will answer a few questions, and then we will move into prayer, because this is the third day of our 21 days of glory, where Amen. we are fasting and praying and believing God for a move of God. Amen. Amen. And um, fasting is a very important aspect of the Christian uh, practice and principles of or what I call the fundamental Christian principles. So when we engage in fasting and prayer, um, it is biblical and it is necessary. I understand that there are some questions regarding fasting and prayer. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I've been sharing the past three days, fasting was practiced by Jesus Christ. Um, if, I, if I mention Moses, you will say it is Old Testament. But uh, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, the prophets of old were engaged in prayer and fasting. And we always need to add prayer to the fasting or fasting to the prayer. Um, fasting without prayer uh, becomes starvation. And it is also not a protest um, or like a political hunger strike to force God's hand to perform at all costs. But it is actually and every other thing so as to be able to. So tonight, I believe that God will minister to us in many ways. I don't want to preach. I want the questions come, answer the questions that are bothering you, and then we will spend um, just after 9 o'clock, uh, we will spend some time in prayer. I think we have started late, so maybe around 9.15, we will bring the questions to an end. Only if I'm able to control myself from the answers I give. Okay, God Amen. bless you. Welcome. Amen. Thank you, Papa. You're welcome. So, um, as always, we will start off with the questions that we already have. If you have any questions, you know what to do. Um, Christchurch HQ on YouTube and Christchurch International on Facebook. You can also send an email to um, get understanding at Christchurch. Christchurches. Christchurches.org. Amen. 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 Um, so I will just go through right to the first question, Papa. Yes. Um, like you said, we are talking about fasting. So we are opening the floor with a question on fasting. Mm. 
And the question here says, if God knows all our needs, mm. why must we punish ourselves with fasting before he can hear us and answer our prayers? <laughs> <laughs> it's a legitimate question. I can, I can imagine Jevon asking this, <laughs> of, this kind of question. And that's how he thinks. And he's, I like his, he's in his own world. Um, so, yes, it's a, it's a legitimate question to ask. But then when we look into the scriptures, I've found out that fasting is not God's way of punishing us before he can answer our prayer. Neither is it our way of protest to force government called God to um, avoid a political crisis that a prisoner might die uh, through starvation and therefore Amnesty International will come against the government and therefore the government will be forced to listen to your plea. But it is actually... Um, a way by which we are homesick and we are God-sick and we want to leave everything behind and focus on God. Fasting is a practice by which we deny ourselves worldly stuff, things of pleasure, uh, so that we can focus on a spiritual purpose. So you see that people from various religions are involved in needs, uh, but because First of all, it is to give us total concentration on God. And when we talk about fasting, our focus has always been on denying ourselves of food. But if we look into the Bible correctly, we will see that it is not only food, but it is actually deny ourselves of every worldly pleasure so as to be able to focus on God and to be, you know, making a statement of faith that nothing matters except you. Our purpose of fasting is not only to go to God in a state of hunger just to ask things from God, but it should be a moment of consecration to God and to go to God with the world behind us. Every other thing that we normally do, we stop doing it so that we can focus entirely on God. Um, and they are, when I talk about the widening of it from the food aspect, because it looks like our focus is I'm going to deny myself food and therefore I'm punishing myself. But God actually wants some attention from you. And, and there is also a way by which we normally would not have been able to connect with God if we were not fasting because our daily activities cloud so many things. And so fasting is a moment of consecration. To consecrate means to set apart. So you set yourself apart with a goal to seek God in the place of prayer, but this time denying yourself what normally you would have enjoyed. Mm -hmm. um, the other reason also is because it's not only an enemy who comes to block us from actually, you know, getting to God, but some of the good things that God has made available for us can also be an enemy to us getting to God. I mean, I think in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gave a parable about an invitation that was thrown by a master, a lord, to people that he wanted them at his banquet. And we understand that parable to mean the master or the lord there was the Lord Jesus Christ. And his servant is the church, or the pastors in the church, or Christians, that must go out and invite people to come and taste of the supper he has made ready, which is everlasting life. However, three levels of excuses were provided. First one says, I have bought a land and I'm going to see to it so I will not be able to attend to you. So you see, when the master is seeking our attention, the blessings of lands and property and investment is occupying us that we don't have him. 
and we don't really pay attention. So we are even ignoring his invitation, even at basic level of daily prayer, daily word, everything. We are just, you know, so focused on the things of the world. So we, we reject his advice or his invitation based on the land he has given to us. And it was a flimsy excuse because the dinner is in the night. And who goes to inspect land at night? The second excuse was, I have got my oxen or my cattle. And I'm going to take care of them so I'll not be able to attend the banquet. You know, again, blessings of, you know, oxen and every other thing we need in our farms and our businesses has been provided. And it is now occupying us from responding to the master's call. And then finally, he says, I have married a wife. Uh, in this context, I will say a spouse. And that also then occupies us. We pray, we believe God for breakthrough. He gives us a husband, he gives us a wife, gives us children. And now we use them all as excuses why we will not have time for him. And so we fast all these things. You know, Abraham was asked to do something which can be technically described as a fast. He had desired a child of his own. Then God gives him his child and God says, give up that one. You know, give up your lunch. Give up, give up that golden child, that Isaac. And Abraham was willing to really give. That is a fast. It is a, a very extreme form of fasting to fast that child to God. And when he did, the response from God was that, I now know that you fear me. You know, and so what can we sacrifice for the Lord? So if we have to put the flesh aside, the worldly things aside, so that we can concentrate on God, and focus on him and receive from him, receive fellowship from him, receive communion with him and receive direction from him. That is the reason why we fast. It is not like a political thing or because God knows that all our needs, he still wants us to punish ourselves. No, it's not punishment. When you see it that way, then you are not ready to give up anything for the Lord. So if we can't just give up food, but if we look through the scriptures, even the son of God, who is God the son, Fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That tells you something spiritual happens when we fast. And that there's a great benefit spiritually and even physically when we fast and pray. And throughout the scriptures, we see this trend. Fasting adds a certain dimension to our prayer life. And that is the reason why we fast and not a form of punishment. Let me summarize it here before I preach a whole sermon. <laughs> Thank you very much, Pastor. So fasting is not punishment. We are just denying ourselves of worldly pleasures and to focus on God and Amen. to receive from him. Amen. So um, just a, a, a short follow-up question on that. Assuming yeah. that you are somebody who is um, addicted to, let's say, Netflix, you know, you, you watch Netflix all day. Yeah. If for a period of time you decide that I am not going to watch Netflix, I'm going to, you know, read my Bible and pray, w would you then... Is it, is it okay to think that of that as a form of fast as well? Or does it always have to be accompanied with giving up of food? Um, yeah, so fasting involves, you know, refusing to take something. You see, um, uh, in, in medicine, we've got certain group of bacteria called acid-fast bacteria, acid-fast bacilli, like uh, uh, mycobacterium uh, leprae. It's a, it's a bacteria that causes leprosy. Um, and and uh, some of these, and, and the one that causes tuberculosis. Um, so this, they are acid fast. It means that they fast acid. You know, if you put them in an acid, they won't take it. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so they are called acid fast. That means that if we are fasting something, we are refusing to take something so as to um, attain something higher. So, yes, when we are fasting, we deny ourselves of all the Netflix. It's a form of pleasure. You know, it's wasting all your time. Compare how many hours of Bible reading and how many hours of watching Netflix. It's one episode to the other. And before you realize, you have done 10 hours just sitting and watching, but you have not been able to do 10 hours of prayer. Um, and, and so, yes, if we, that's a form of fasting, but then, you know, we can't just say, okay, this time I'm going to eat as much as possible, but I'm just not going to watch Netflix. That's not what the Lord is looking for. He wants this body to be brought under subjection. When we also bring the body under subjection, we are learning the principle of self-control and allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through us because there is the element of denying yourself food puts the body in a state to receive from the Holy Spirit, you know, because the there, there are atmospheres that, not, that needs to be created for the presence of God to fill someone. And that is why throughout the scriptures, right, if we take it from Moses, you will see that God called him up the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And he came down with great power. Uh, Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible says he returned from the Jordan in the power of the Spirit. So there is a certain power released in the place of fasting and prayer. So much as... We deny ourselves this thing so that we can be focusing on seeking God, you know, because if I stop watching Netflix, but I'm just relaxed and sleeping, then I'm not helping myself. If I stop watching the Netflix, which has become the addiction, and it has become the blessing God has given to us, is now taking the attention away from God, then it has become a God. So then I have to be reading my Bible and sacrifice that time to actually seek God in prayer. Why don't you try it tonight? Some of you have been you know, start your next fleece from 11 p.m. and it takes you all the way to 6 a.m. And then you sleep the whole day. It's not the normal order. The devil is cheating you. But listen, if you want to go that way, why don't we start tonight? 11 p.m., enter into a place of prayer and pray to God. Put all the phones off, the chats with friends, everything, and focus on God for six hours and see what will happen. Something strange will happen to you. Some kind of power will be released. And the glory of God will be released. God is looking for such vessels. But we are too occupied. And remember, you are a temple. And if the temple is so busy, the, the God of that temple is not able to take full habitation and full control. And that is why we fast so that we can focus on God and deny ourselves all the pleasures. That's why the scripture also even talks about in the marriage context, that you, you just both stay away from sex un unless it is by consent. But the Bible says it is also, and then it says after the fast, you come together so that you are not tempted by the enemy. But that means there's that component especially also expected that you are denying yourself pleasure so as to seek God. But if we fast and we don't pray and we sleep the whole 21 days, we have done nothing. The devil is not even moved. Okay. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. Amen. 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 So, um... Next question, Papa. Yes. If the Holy Spirit already came to fill us up, mm. why do we need to continue to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us up and sing songs like, Holy Spirit, fill me now? Amen. Amen. Okay, that's a, a good question to ask. Sometimes people, um, you know, hold certain views and therefore they try to say once they are filled with the Holy Spirit, there's no need for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit or even ask to be filled again. But when we study the scriptures critically, 
we will see a pattern which we see as the continuous infilling with the Holy Spirit. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then there's a continuous infilling with the Holy Spirit. And, and unfortunately, those who think this way have not really looked at the whole context because they have just taken one verse of scripture or in their zeal, as the scripture talks about, people with zeal without knowledge. But the reality of the scriptures is that if we take, for example, the scripture in Acts chapter 4, from verses 29 all the way to verse 33, we will see that the Bible says the verses before, um, Peter and John had gone to the temple beautiful and they had actually to the gate beautiful around the temple area and they had raised a cripple. And because of that, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees were very upset. So they arrested them and they were threatened not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says that they were whipped and then allowed to go. And they went to their own company. That means they went back to the church. And in the gathering of the church, they reported what has been said. And the Bible says they held a prayer meeting and they prayed and said, Lord, behold the threats of the enemy and grant unto your servants that with all boldness we will continue to preach your word by granting that signs and wonders be performed in the name of your holy son, Jesus. And the Bible says when they had prayed, when they had prayed, the place where they were was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the people in Acts chapter 4 who were all filled with the Holy Spirit had already been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So if there was not a continuous filling of the Holy Spirit, why did the scripture say that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, they were not filled with the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues afresh. They were filled with the Holy Spirit for continuous empowerment to do the work of the ministry. Again, Ephesians chapter 3 one of the famous scriptures we have been reading as a church and praying from, is so very clear as well, which says that Paul prayed that we will be strengthened with might in our inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is a continuous infilling with the Holy Spirit. We need to always pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit continuously. That is a supply of power. That is a supply of great strength and if we just say we are filled with the Holy Spirit, one touch, and we are not going to the Lord to be renewed, it's like going to a fuel station and getting the car filled and carry on. Because after we've run to do the work, we need to come back in the place of prayer to be filled. You know, so we already have the Holy Spirit, but there are levels of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible says Jesus returned in the power. And if you watch the pattern of Jesus again, it gives you an idea of this. It's either coming from a place of prayer to preach, and after he had preached, he retreats to the place of prayer. What is happening there? There is a certain power that is being released. And so we can't do without the Holy Spirit. So being filled with the Holy Spirit in the baptism of the Holy Spirit is one level. After that, it is biblical to go to the Lord for strength to receive grace from God, the impartation of anointing to be able to do the work of the ministry at different levels. There are different levels and unctions of the anointing. It's not just at one level. So we grow in God because there's no end to the power of God. So the Holy Spirit baptism is the gateway 
to the operation of spiritual gifts and further infilling of the spirit. I've, I've just presented in a nutshell the title of the thesis I wrote when I was studying for my doctorate in theology. Thank you, Papa. So the Holy Spirit baptism is the gateway to the to spiritual, spiritual gift, the operation of spiritual gifts and, and the continual infilling of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Amen. 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 So we have to continue to pray for the Holy Spirit to continually fill us mm. and use us um, for his work. Mm. Um, that question had a second part. Right. So um, it also says that... Um, we also do not need to go to church or have a pastor mm -hmm. over us mm. because first John 2 27 mm. says that the anointing you have received teaches you all things and you do not need anyone to teach you anything else. So what would you say? Because if we are going for daily infilling of the Holy Spirit and continual infilling, mm. then why do we need, you know, pastors and church? Um, that's the question, Papa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Before I answer that question, you know, sometimes there's a theory that people hold to theoretically, uh, like the first question, you know, as in, um, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Why did I need continuous infilling? Why do I have to sing, Holy Spirit, fill me now? But when we practically, when we meet and we sing those songs, there's a move. <laughs> you know, there's a movement of the Holy Spirit. And so you realize that you are not the same. Your prayer life changes. There is an anointing that comes that changes the way you pray, the way you do things, and your growth in God moves to another level. So if it is, if God is not happy with it, he's the one who answers the prayer. He would have refused to come to the meeting, nor even anoint anybody or empower anybody. You know, so theory is one side. Practically, what do we see? Um, in the same way, when this scripture is quoted, the same people, whenever people hold such views, you have to hold them, look at them carefully, um, because it's, it is the, it comes from the doctrine of agnostics, uh, sorry, uh, Gnosticism, you know, Gnosticism. That is the, you know, Gnostics are people who, you know, hold religious views, especially, it started somewhere uh, around the time of the early church, and it is a false doctrine that comes into church. They hold religious views. It sounds as if it's Christianity, but it's not. It denies the deity of Jesus Christ. It denies that Christ actually came to die and that he is the son of God. They said it is, it is a perception, but not a reality. Okay, so, and again, in interpreting scripture, which of course sometimes people, when you read that scripture, to the ordinary eye and to the ordinary believer, when you read 1 John 2, 27, it's, it's true. It says there, as for you, the anointing you have received abides in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. Okay, so when somebody sees it on face value, then it's like, this is a very strong doctrine I can stand on. It's true. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. I don't need a pastor and I don't need a church. And a certain school of thought runs like that. There are certain groups who profess to be Christians, but they hold such views. And I'm here to say on authority by the word of God that it is a wrong biblical perspective to look at. It is, it is, it is this sort of heresy that says that. Now, in order to explain a scripture, as I've taught you over the years, we need to look at the pretext, the text, the post-text, then we can get the context. So I want us to really take our time and go back to this scripture. Let's start it from verse 18 so we can see what is John, the apostle, writing about. I want you to understand, let me give you the background briefly again of our 
1 John chapter 2 because that scripture, once you read it in the scripture, it looks so clear that it says, I don't need a teacher. I know, I've received the anointing. I don't need anyone to teach me. What is it that is saying we don't need anyone to teach us? Is it everything or is it a particular thing? First of all, we want to place 1 John in context. It was written just after around AD 70, just after AD 70, in between AD 70 and AD 90. At this stage, all the first eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ had died, except John. He's the last apostle to die because Jesus prophesied it as well. So he was the last apostle to die, and he was around at this time. He's the only person who at this stage had seen the risen and the living Jesus. All those ones are generations after, you know, this is 70 years after Jesus had died. Think about Peter's age at the time of Jesus. Peter was older than Jesus, so 70 years plus that would have been, you know, he's dead by now. All of those ones. So this is John writing to the church. And then he says something very crucial because around this time, such Gnostics are around. And these sort of heresies and doctrines were coming into the church denying the deity of Jesus Christ. That is why we are going to place the whole reading in context. So let's all read together from verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. The people is going to talk about, they have been in church before. They have gone out of the church with some strange doctrines. But they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. He's talking to the Christians who have remained. You have been anointed by the Holy One and all of you have knowledge. Because, of course, this is not contradictory to when Jesus spoke in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. He says the Holy Spirit will come and he will guide us into all truth. Now, when he said the Holy Spirit will come and teach us all things, he didn't say because the Holy Spirit will come and teach us all things, we don't need pastors. Even though he said it to them, he's the one who instituted apostles on the day of Pentecost or Peter who preached. The whole church didn't say we have all received the Holy Ghost. We don't need a pastor. There were structures in the church the apostles were teaching. And the Bible says many became obedient to the apostles' doctrines. When there was a challenge in the church in Antioch and some heresies were going on there, Peter, uh, Paul and Silas were sent to take the message back to the church in Jerusalem and the council of the church met. The leadership of the church, Peter, James, were there and they gave their sentence on what must be taught in the church. We have all been filled with the Holy Ghost, but there were pastors there. Right through the scriptures, we see them. But let's look at the context here again. Now, it says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. Knowledge about what? Knowledge about the deity of Christ. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth. Which truth? We'll see it very soon. But because you know it, and you know that no lie comes from the truth. Verse 22, who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So the issue here about understanding whether Jesus is the Christ, because these Gnostics are saying he is not the son of God. He is just someone who came, but he's not the son of God. So John was addressing 
a problem that was existing around the time, an issue of doctrine concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. So then he says, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. He says some people left the church, and those people, this is what they believe. So he said, these are the Antichrists I'm talking about. They are against Christ. They are against the deity of Christ. But you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit teaches you who Christ is. Not everything that we don't need a pastor, but who Christ is in this context. Let's go on again. Let's finish so that we can hit the 27 properly. Now it says, no one who denies the son has the father. Everyone who confesses the son has the father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the son and you abide in the father. And this is what he has promised. He has promised us eternal life. Verse 26, I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. So you see, before he brought, you don't need, you have the anointing, you don't need anyone to teach you. He says, some people are deceiving you. So then he says, I don't want you to be deceived because as for you, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that you have received from him, from Christ, who is the him here, abides in you. And so you don't need anyone to teach you about his deity as Christ. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, which confirms John chapter 16 and John chapter 14. He will come and teach us all things. He says, and it is true and it's not a lie. And just as it has taught you, so you abide in him. So that something is, there's a, a doctrine out there that is telling people Jesus is not the Christ. So many people are deviating from the church and backsliding from Christ. He says, stay in. You already have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also a witness that Jesus is the Christ. But it is not to say that we don't need a pastor to teach us or we don't need to go to church. What is being taught here is being taught by a pastor to his congregation. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says that obey them that have the rule over you. So that means the scripture already expects that there are pastors in church. Then verse 17 also says, submit yourself to them that have the rule over you, who have taught you the word of God. They watch over your soul as those that must give account. So look, uh, Hebrews 13, 7, Hebrews 13, 17, you'll find the same clarity there. He Ephesians 4 tells us pastors have been set in the church. So the fact that we receive the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we don't need anyone to teach us. We need continuous teaching by the anointing of the fivefold ministries. Whilst at the same time, there's also the balance that once we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit also brings us conviction of certain truths. For instance, if you have been taught that you must not steal, you don't need pastor to be present when the temptation to steal comes. Because the Holy Spirit in you will also convict you that it is not the right thing to do. Any form of sin, when you approach it, the Holy Spirit in you will convict you about that. So in one context, it is true. When the Holy Spirit is in us, he brings us conviction and teaches us some things. But it doesn't mean that we don't need pastoral leadership because right through the scriptures, we find the order is there. This is just one verse of scripture and we have seen it in context. You can't build a doctrine around just that verse and say, because of that, I don't need a pastor. You need a pastor. And anything that says that is not the Bible, it is error. And when people move away, they start moving into all kinds of error. It's a very clear case of Gnosticism 
that is really uh, what is happening here. But this is the context. Then he says in the verse 28, and now little children abide in him who? In Christ. So that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. Because it will be put to shame if we have backslided at the time of the rapture. So this is the context of that. It doesn't say that because of this, you don't need a pastor. Otherwise, that same Jesus told us, go ye into the world, preach the gospel, baptize, teach them to observe all things. So they will have to be teaching. We can't say that we know all things and we don't need teaching. Me, myself, I still need teaching. I read books. I listen to other men of God. I, I don't say, you have to grow and you have to allow yourself to be taught. We all don't know all things. So the Lord is not going to shut off the ministries of the apostle, the prophet, the teacher, the pastor, or the evangelist, and say, because we are all filled with the Holy Ghost, we don't need church anymore. That's an error. The context here is not the fact that you don't need pastor or church. The context is there was something going on here. And he says, you even have the witness of the Holy Spirit in you that tells you Jesus is the Christ, so don't believe what they are saying. This is the context in this very verse. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, Papa. So we do need church mm -hmm. and we do need pastors because we still need to be taught, even though we have the witness of the Holy Spirit in us. Amen. Amen. Because Amen. we never stop learning. Yes. Hallelujah. Amen. If you have just joined us, you are welcome to our midweek service. This is Christ Church International, and we are very pleased and happy to have you worshiping with us. Um, today we are having our Q&A and we are talking about prayer and fasting. Mm. And I promised you at the beginning that we are going to learn a lot. And we have. We haven't finished, but we have learned a lot. Amen. Amen. So I have three, three questions on fasting. Mm. And then I have a few other ones. So we'll try and squeeze it in the, in the nine shape. minutes that we have. Okay. Amen. Amen. So, um, Papa, the question well, we can is... Take it to 830, 830. and then we'll pray 30 minutes yes, after please. that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, when Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, mm. did he fast on a 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. basis like we do today, or did he go completely without food? Um, it's very clear that he took no food with him as he went into the um, wilderness or into the, into the bush or the desert. Um, the scripture is very clear in Luke chapter 4. That after he was baptized at the Jordan, he was led by the Holy Spirit to fast and to pray. So one of the job descriptions of the Holy Spirit, if he's truly feeling you, is that there will be the creation of a, of a hunger and an appetite to fast and to pray. He led Jesus to fast and pray. So we, we will be led by him to fast and pray. Now, there's no record that he carried anything with him. But the scripture can be proved that he... After he had fasted and prayed, the scripture says he was hungry afterward. And then the tempter came to say to him, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. That means he didn't have anything. If he had one piece of bread with him, Satan would have used that to say, multiply this one and feed yourself here. So it is very clear that he didn't have anything. And my experience and my observation of certain men of God or fathers of faith or at certain levels of ministry leadership, uh, our type of fasting is not six to six. It's, it's round the clock. It's, it's, it's you pray at a certain point. Sometimes strategically and prophetically, we pray through the gates of the day uh, and the gates of the night. 
or the watches of the day and the watches of the night. So, you know, you do uh, 6 a.m., then 9 a.m., and then 12, 12 in, the, in the afternoon, then 3 p.m., then 6 p.m., then 9 p.m., then 12 midnight, and it goes on. In between these, in between these, but these are one-one hours if you are praying like that, but sometimes in between these, you are feasting on the word, and so sometimes we've fasted and prayed that way where on your own as you go on waiting, at a certain level of leading a church, you can't be praying with like the way the church prays. You have to be in the front lines of the battle. And so you are reading your scriptures sometimes four hours nonstop. And then as soon as you finish, you are doing four hours prayer nonstop. And then it goes on like that. Sometimes you fall into a sleep and then you may see visions, etc. But it's sort of like a round the clock thing, which I believe is what Jesus would have done. Amen. 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 So we, we put 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. there just for the guidance of uh, some of you. <laughs> just to help you know where your limit is, but uh, so that you can break it uh, mm. in the name of safety. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you can decide to go on and you on can, and you on can go as on you are led on. by yes. the Spirit. Yes. Amen. So you can break it and carry on praying. Yes, so when you break it, you can carry on praying. The prayer doesn't stop. It's the food we want you to break a little bit. But <laughs> if, you are, if you gain strength, you, you can push past and, uh, and you won't die. <laughs> Amen. 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 Um, I have one question here. I understand it's from our very zealous arrows of destiny, someone from the children's ministry of Oh, my people, my people. <laughs> I miss you. And the question is, what age do you need to be before you can fast? Okay. Right. Again, um, it is a matter of maturity and understanding. But at the same time, you want to also guide a child. Uh, there's a way God can move by his anointing. But we also believe that um, we need to be guiding the children. Uh, it is also proper to teach them the way of the Lord. The scripture also showed us that in a time of serious national crisis, Jehoshaphat gathered all Judah and their little ones, and they fasted. Mm -hmm. So um, we can't subject the children to 12 hours um, or 6 hours, but maybe if they could, they could fast maybe 2 hours or 3 hours to start with. If they can go on, fine. Um, because we are also bound by various legislations in various countries, you don't want to be accused of uh, child abuse and etc. But I have known that even among uh, Muslims, when they are doing their fast, children fast. Mm. They subject them all to... They, they, you see, we, we are too careful. That's why we don't see the power of God. <laughs> we are too careful these days. But it is also good to apply wisdom. I mean, you can't deny... Uh, anyway, a six-week-old baby, <laughs> the breast week as they are crying, say, we are fasting in this house. No, they don't know what you are doing. Uh, sometimes my mother will say, those days, she say, you are the one that God called. He hasn't called the children yet. <laughs> so let them, let them be a little bit. Um, but I believe that it all depends on the maturity level. Um, sometimes we have ministered communion to certain children, not because we don't know, but because if they can understand their faith mm. and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then nothing stops them. Because in the same way in the occult world, they don't stop little children if they are initiating them into witchcraft mm. and things like that. So we can't say we wanted them to be at the age of 16 before, you know. But if at the age of 10, they don't mind, or at the age of 8, it feels that, that I think I can do up to 11, 
let's give him a try. Just give him a watch, but just make sure he's reading his Bible and he's praying and gradually we teach them this to grow with. Because at the same time, sometimes they really don't eat whilst they are on their games. When school is on break, you see them right through the night, you come again, he's still not sleeping. What are you doing? Still watching something. You know, and sometimes they are, have you eaten? No, he hasn't eaten. You know, and you've gotten their breakfast by them and they have still not touched it, but they are fixated on some superheroes or some other guys and they really want to win the game. Now, but they have been concentrating on a certain image in the, on the screen and that may go on for 12 hours or six hours and they haven't eaten. Sometimes they're waking up early in the morning and they're like, I don't, want, I don't feel for food now. And then they go on their games and they go on it for hours. Now, that is not child abuse, isn't it? <laughs> but they always say they should concentrate on God. It can't be child abuse. It's the way we guide them. So I won't put an age to it, but I think that uh, we will look at them, when, what, they can have, well, what they can cope with. We start them off from there. And that will be a very good way of teaching them certain principles about their faith. Amen. Amen. So it's a matter of maturity and um, we also have to guide them and to teach them. It's not just about not eating. They have yeah. to pray as well. Yeah. Amen. And read their Bibles. And read their Bibles. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, so this one is a follow-up question. To, you know when you were answering the second question, mm. you said... Um, you quoted the scripture that said that by agreement, married couple could decide to abstain yes. um, from sex. So yeah. someone says, is mm. it okay for a married couple to be intimate after breaking their fast at the end of each day? Yes. Yes, it is. Because the fast is broken. Once you break the fast and you can eat, then you can do any other thing. But then you carry on praying. That's what the scripture clearly says in the First Corinthians 7 account. It says with consent, you know, from each side, mm -hmm. you know, so because that, that's one God has given you that liberty. Uh, but then we also know what are we looking for? What is our principle? Do we want to go this way for this period of time? But then if we break the fast at six, yes, it's all right. Amen. Yes. Amen. Amen. Nobody should use it as an excuse then. <laughs> <laughs> um, Another question, Papa. Yes. It says, Dear Bishop, I would love to fast until 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. However, last year I developed a stomach problem. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what time do you think is suitable for me to break my fast? Okay. Um, we, we can approach this in two ways. Number one, if you, are, you have developed a stomach problem and doctors have put you on medication, um, then I will advise that you take your medication, eat your food, but pray through. Pray, pray, spend much time doing the prayer uh, without denying yourself food. But you can deny yourself all other pleasures uh, except the food because your health depends on it. It also depends on your faith level. Um, some want to believe God, Lord, this is the medium by which I want to be healed. So I want to fast and pray. So yes, sometimes depending on your strength, if you can't go all the way to the 6 p.m., and you can do up to 12, and then you break and eat something little. I mean, this is not the time to eat six balls of kinky uh, as, as compensation for what you denied yourself for the past six hours. One ball of kinky per hour. Uh, no, so you can take in some, you know, bananas and things like that. Something soft, not heavy, 
but at least something to occupy the stomach. It depends on what type of stomach problem was developed. If it's an ulcer, if it's gastritis, etc. then in that case, you need to put something in the tummy and you need to be on the medication and then believe God in the place of prayer. And I know that God has done that to other people I know about who had ulcers before. And during fasting, they would try to believe God because they, they, they couldn't go without food. But they have believed God. And today they can fast for hours um, and the whole thing is gone. You know, after all kinds of endoscopy and others, nothing was found. They have actually been healed completely. But they believe God. Their church will fast. They will also pray. They pray up to 11. Then they started moving. The next time they moved to 12, you know, gradually now they could do six and there's nothing anymore. So we apply wisdom and faith as we go along. So, yes, if you can't do all the way to 12, and because of the condition, uh, like Paul advised Timothy, take a little uh, wine for thy often stomach infirmities. And he's not talking about alcohol here, because you can't you can cure stomach infirmities with alcohol. It doesn't work medically. Amen. Amen. So we have to apply wisdom as well, and, and we also have to have faith. Amen. Amen. And your faith will make you whole. Amen. Amen. Um, so the next question, Papa, is not yeah. directly about fasting, but mm. according to Genesis, the woman mm. is created to be the man's helper. Mm. In order for a woman to fulfill her purpose, does she have to be under the leadership of a man? Does a woman have to be married to fully fulfill her God-given purpose? Okay. Um, I... I believe that God created the man and then he said it is not good for the man to be alone. And when he provided the woman to the man, it was in the context of marriage. Now, it doesn't mean that all the women he brought into this world were brought immediately to an Adam. So a woman can fulfill her duty or her purpose on this earth, not necessarily being married. We desire to be married, but Jesus one day made a profound statement that um, if you can take it, uh, some men were born eunuchs, and some also chose to become eunuchs by choice. Um, as we desire to get married, sometimes it may be delayed, some it never happens at all, and we may not know why. Our duty is to pray and believe God for it. Now, the fact that a lady is not married doesn't mean she cannot fulfill her ministry or fulfill her assignment, her God-given assignment. Um, when she is married, she's married to a man, and so they both come together to help each other fulfill an assignment. Um, it's because the man was made first. When the woman came, it was said that she has come to be a helper suitable for him because God, Adam could not find any suitable helper. I mean, he has millions of pets you know, from giraffes to uh, lions and kangaroos. Uh, but none of them could satisfy his need until God brought him the woman. Um, so it doesn't limit a woman to say that without a husband. For instance, in the case of Luke chapter 2, where we read that Jesus was born, and when he was taken to the temple to be dedicated, Anna came along. She got married. Seven years into her marriage, she lost the husband. And for over 84 years, she was in the temple serving God in fasting and prayer. She did not marry again, but she fulfilled her ministry of actually being the intercessor 
that will pray the From the scriptures, so it doesn't mean that if you are not married, you can't become anything. Mm. Uh, from the scriptures, that may be wrong in, in looking at it. Sometimes it creates a needless pressure on single women and try to force them into something that they may regret later on because it's sort of like a peer pressure all over the place. We continue to pray that those who are not married, God will give them helpers suitable for them. Amen. God will give them men and women after his own heart. But if it delays and hasn't happened, it doesn't stop you from rising to seek God and fulfill your destiny and your ministry. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. So you do not need to be married to fulfill, as a woman, to fulfill your God-given assignment. Amen. In, in the same but, context, sorry, let me come in here. Forgive me for talking. <laughs> that's fine. But that's right. you see, when we flip it again, we see, why is it that men... If the Bible says that, assuming we are looking at that scripture and that context, that says that uh, you know, the woman was created to help the man. How about a man who is not married, but he goes ahead without a woman, still able to fulfill his ministry? Mm. So where is this sort of discrimination that comes against women? Come? If you read the scriptures properly, you find out it's a total balance. Mm. It is culture that sometimes relegates the woman to somewhere as if she can't become anything without a man. Mm. But why is it that a man can be something without a woman? But the scripture says he needs help. Amen. 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 Thank you for the teaching, Papa. Um, the next question. Yes. It says that what is a one-man church? <laughs> <laughs> Some people say that they will not attend church because the church is for the pastor and his wife. Or they say things like, I will not attend the church that I am older than. What would you say to that, please? Well, thank you for the question. Um, <laughs> I think that these kind of questions have been there from time immemorial. Uh, when we were growing up, we used to argue against it. Um, <laughs> as in, you hear people say that, what church do you go to? You mention the name of the charismatic church. You say, oh, this one just came. Mm -hmm. I don't attend churches. I'm older than um, etc. And it's a one-man church. Um, let me take time to explain a few things. Whenever people say one-man church, is always spoken with a mindset which is supposed to be derogatory. It's, it's a form of an insult mm. to um, a church um, that has a leader. And what whenever people say that, I pity them, sadly, because I realize they don't understand the scriptures and they don't understand the ways and workings of God. Every church today that has become established, started with one man. If you were living in the days of Jesus, I believe you would not attend his church. Mm -hmm. Because his church was very young than the established church of Judaism and the one that the Pharisees attended. But whenever God is going to do anything, he starts off with one man. If you were in the church in the wilderness, led by Pastor Moses, then you won't attend his church. Because in his case, his assistant pastor is his brother. And the deputy assistant <laughs> is the sister. <laughs> That's when the church belongs to them. 
if you, if you are not called by their surname, mm. you, don't, you don't even belong. Would you have attended the church? But that is how God builds his ministry. That's God always sets the pattern. So you need a good teaching in church history. And what we call the study, the movements and operations of God. The movements of God will show you this right from, I can prove to you from the Old Testament, taking Moses as, as, as an example. As he was coming, it was only he who was called. And he had to come. And then over time, then he raised leaders. Then there were 70 elders. And then there was an establishment. Mm -hmm. So today when you look at, look at the Jewish religion, they are established from where? When they started in Egypt. There was no order. Mm. There was no hierarchy. There's no executive council. There's only one Pastor Moses. So after some time, even Aaron did not understand his ministry. He went to the mountain to wait on God for 40 days. When he came, Aaron has done some stuff. So you don't just start church and start putting people into executive positions. It doesn't work that way. After a while, after some time, by the time God takes the founder away, there will be establishment. And you follow it through the scriptures. It goes like that until the time of Jesus Christ himself. He also came. People in his village said, I won't go to this one-man church. Jesus of Nazareth leading his church. People said so many things about him. But after three and a half years, he was able to raise some people he called apostles. Mm. Set up a team. And then when he left, that team gradually built up until there was the first executive council meeting in Acts chapter 15. They address the situation and the church continues to build from there. There was already a church in Rome. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Mm. It is not the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is not the first church as sometimes some of them erroneously teach. No. There was already a church in Rome. They were hiding. They are underground church because the emperors were killing the believers. Until the first century when Emperor Constantine declared that he is now a Christian. So then he made Christianity the national religion. So that's why you have the word Catholic. That means universal. Roman universal church or the universal church of Rome. Because Rome was a superpower, an empire that was ruling the whole world. And so parts of the church were absorbed. The church started coming out. And they have to set up their system the way it was set up. But there was already the church there. Mm. The church in Antioch and all of them. That's why you have the Greek Orthodox Church. It was already there. These were all started by the apostles. It was one man church for a while until structures are built in. And then Martin Luther rebelled against the Catholic Church. Put down his 99 theses that he put into the cathedral. And that led to the Reformation. And then Henry VIII wanted to marry. Whole of England was then Catholic. Or the UK, let me say that. When Henry VIII wanted to marry and there was a disagreement with the Pope, the Pope decided that, no, you can't go ahead with this. He too disagreed with the Pope and decided to form his Church of England against his church, the Church of Rome. Mm -hmm. So he each actually captured most of the cathedrals and then... You know, appointed his own priests and, and carried on with that. So you will see again, this is how these things were working. But it started from somewhere. It was one month before. Then we talk about the Methodist church. Then John Wesley, the son of a priest in the Anglican church, 
decided that he has seen revelation in the word of God. That salvation is not by works. But salvation is by justification. So in order to attain the work of salvation, we need to walk methodically to what has been taught in the word of God. So he rebelled against the Anglican church and came out. His first pulpit was his father's grave in the yard of an Anglican church. They kicked him out of the church. He said, this is my father's grave. That one, you can't move me out. He started preaching. It's one-man church. Today, you are established as Methodist. You look at other churches that God is doing and call them one-man churches. Derogatory, but you are making a mistake because John Wesley, in his days, would have been described as a one-man church. There was no executive council. There was no synod. There was nothing. It took some time before he put leaders in place. And after so many years, it got established this way. It goes through the same way. And you see these same missionaries that came from that foundation comes into, let's say, Africa. When the Methodist church arrived in Ghana, for example, there were people who would have said, I won't attend the church, I'm older than. Because at the time the Methodist church starts in Ghana, somebody is older than the pastor who came to start it. So he would have said the same thing. Understand church history so you don't make the mistake of others who speak without knowledge. Or even end up fighting against the plan of God. And you look at the same thing and you see how the church, for instance, the Pentecostals and Charismatics came out of the established Orthodox churches like the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, the Anglican Church, etc. You have that. So, you, for instance, a church like the Church of Pentecost was started by a man called James Macchion. At that season, he would have been one-man church. The Church of Pentecost is established, but how many years did they take that establishment? So for a long time, he just doesn't come and then starts raising people as executives. No, it took him some time. And so for a moment, he may have been one-man church. But that's how God has always done his things. All these churches we are seeing that appear to be established now, like some of the charismatic churches like ICGC, etc. They started some time ago, they called them one-man churches that were meeting in classrooms. So every ministry and every church you see today, first of all, had a one-man leader. It took some time and some years before it has become established today. So it's very important that people look at the movement of God from the eye of God rather than being derogatory and end up actually fighting a move of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Papa. This is... Um... Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So um, we need to understand church history. And God always starts something with one man. And it grows and becomes established. I tell you, don't miss, don't miss Q&As. And don't, most importantly, don't miss our Wednesday uh, midweek teaching services. Uh, we are taught proper doctrine. And it makes all the difference between going to heaven and going to hell. Amen. Amen. So it's 831, Papa. Yes. But because we are in COVID times, I have a question on COVID okay. that I need to ask. Um, so I'll ask it and I'll give you two minutes to answer it so that we can pray. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So the question says, was COVID designed to target blacks? Is the vaccine designed to cause blacks to be sterile? Is it a form of population control? Oh, yeah. Amen. Okay. First of all, first of all, this is a virus that has come um, and is causing a lot of 
havoc. It has killed thousands. But let's settle the issue. Was it a deliberate plan? As it appears, this question, I've also heard it, and sometimes you see in platforms, and sometimes certain people who should be renowned men of God are also making statements, and they are not helping. Because when it's not your area, don't move there. Mm. If you are not a medical scientist, don't speak with authority on this. Pastor, stay in your pulpit and preach your gospel. Amen. Because you are, you, are, you are misleading the flock and letting them break rules that will protect others. And they might think the thing is a hoax and it's rather going to spread and you end up killing your church members. But let me say here, was the, vac- was the vaccine or was the virus, the virus, is it the, vas- the virus vaccine? The, the vaccine. Mm. Was it supposed to target blacks and make them sterile? Mm. Um, I think it's no. The answer is an emphatic no. First of all, let's look at it. This virus has killed a lot of white people. It has killed more Caucasians than it has killed blacks worldwide. Look at the thousands from Italy. Look at the current in the UK, 60,000 plus. America, 350,000. And you can't say that is all the black population. The black population is only 13% of the United States population. So if you have a lot of people who have died, they are all not blacks. Now, who goes in this technologically advanced age, intentionally develops a virus that is supposed to target the black man, and he didn't design a virus that will not kill a white man? Mm. I mean, in Africa, people may be dying, but if you look at the rate of death in the continent that has the highest population of blacks, compared to the continent that doesn't have that, it has killed more people in that continent where you have got more Caucasians than the, the African continent. So if it was really targeted at blacks, then whoever designed it has failed. <laughs> because the thing, you should be able to work out a virus that only targets blacks. And in this day and age, you can do it. Many, I mean, if you want to do that, you can easily do that. So it is not two. Is the vaccine going to cause population control? Again, it's wrong. Because look at it. The number of people who have been infected by the thing have more of gain of the white population than the black population. And as we can see in the news, many whites are taking the vaccine. Is it designed to really cut them off? See, sometimes black people, we, when we don't understand something, we have to ask, but we speculate too much. I don't know whether because we were sold as slaves, we have become suspicious of everything. So in the end, we don't actually analyze things logically we just believe anything that people say. We are suspicious without any concrete proof. And in that case, that's why blacks are always behind when help is being provided. So take it this way. Assuming all the rest of the world, black people say they are not taking this. All the whites take it. They get immunized. Now you start dying. Mm-hmm. So always you are the last to get help because of this mindset. But I don't believe scientifically and spiritually on authority that this is targeted at black people to control the black people. For what? It's not possible. And it is not true. Think again. The people developing the vaccine, have you checked the scientists who are working? There are blacks among them. You mean they intentionally wanted to do this? I mean, please, let people grow up a little bit. You know, in terms of our analysis of these things, we just say it as if they are trying to kill us. They are trying. Who are the they? <laughs> the people who are trying to they are falling suit. Their presidents are getting the thing. <laughs> It's not sparing anybody. So I don't think it is a target against blacks. And may God help us and give us wisdom to look through things 
correctly from the knowledge God has given to us, from the word of God, and from the scriptures, and from science, which is knowledge that God has given. Science is not against the word of God. I have seen science as actually proving the scriptures. Amen. Amen. So um, we will bring today's Q&A session to an end now. Um, but before we do, I just want us with a clap, with some shouts and some emojis to say a very big thank you once again, always to my very own father, Bishop James Sanson Saki. Hallelujah. Amen. Papa, we are very grateful as always because we always learn many more things. We always go away from Q&As, you know, knowing that we have moved to another level. So we, we are grateful for you for taking the time to answer all our questions. Um, there are a few more questions that we haven't been able to answer. Um, if you have one, or if you send through one of those questions, I would ask that you send them to getunderstanding at christchurches.org and we will provide you an answer. And whenever we have the next Q&A session as well, we will take those questions so that we all learn from it. So thank you to everyone who has joined us. Thank you for the questions and for bringing them through and helping all of us to learn. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Amen.